1: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
0: What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamota and Danny Abdel-Jabbar. What's up, brother? How are you?
2: Chilling, man. As per usual. How about yourself?
0: I can't complain. Um, I'm just looking at to make sure that everything is recording right now, and I think we're good, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, no technical I issues. Know.
0: I think as soon as we started that intro, I finally I've just got like this fear. I'm like, huh? I feel like everything's everything messed going? up. It's well, going. I mean, that's it's that's working.
2: that's a that's a fair fear to have. I mean, I I just recently moved places and had to reset up everything, so. Making sure that all systems are go are, you know, kind of important.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. But we're, seems like we're recording this. So we should be able to perform another episode of this podcast like we said we would last week. All right. I think we said <laughs> we were going to do another one. Um, but what's up, guys? I hope everyone is doing well. Um, do you want to just jump right into the episode or do we want to? Yeah, man, let's do it. Do a little banter. I know you're moving right now.
2: Yeah, it's, it's been pretty stressful. My whole place is a wreck, but I got everything going, so we can just jump right in.
0: All right, let us jump in. So last episode, we did something on the Cold War. We did the origins of the Cold War, um, starting back, uh, just how um, the Cold War developed out of World War II and the rise of the military-industrial complex. And during that episode, there was a question that came up that, Neither of us were really able to come up with a good answer of, and that question was, how did this? How did the Soviet Union create the atom bomb? Because of my of my previous understanding of it was just, you know, the Soviet Union, due to the pressures of the United States creating an atom bomb, they created their atom bomb. That was right. my understanding of it, and it was obviously without really any context. So. Right. We thought it would be interested to to, uh, to tackle that question and to and to learn a little bit more about that and do an episode on it. And um, yeah, um, today's episode we're going to jump into the history of the Soviet atomic program and, and talk about how that came to be. And uh, you know we we definitely found some interesting things. Right, my friend. Oh yeah, it's juicy. But um, I guess the first the first place where I looked at. Is I looked at um, the RAND Corporation. So you know the RAND Corporation that specialized in um, in um, game theory that was started by the Air Force. You know they mm-hmm. have a bunch of policy papers and they still exist to this day. But you know they're basically uh, part of the Air Force that became a private a nonprofit institution um, that was still basically part of the government and they wrote all these papers on on uh, nuclear gamesmanship and stuff like that, like nuclear uh, mutually de- uh, ensured destruction comes out of that and, and all the right. all that theory. But that was the first place I looked, and I'm just going to grab the executive summary from um, a RAND report on the origins of the Soviet atomic program, and I'll read from here. Although the pre-war perceptiveness and abilities of the Soviet atomic scientists seem to match this in the West, The pressing economic and technical demands of World War II forced the virtual abandonment of of Soviet atomic research. In 1943, when it became apparent that German defeat was assured, the Soviets renewed their atomic research, although on a very conservative scale, compared to the grand scope of the U.S. Manhattan Project. This cautious approach to the atom was maintained until the Soviets achieved their first chain-reacting device in 1947, An appreciation of the magnitude of the necessary scientific and industrial effort as well as a minimization of the actual value of the atomic weapons in Soviet political military thinking were partially responsible for keeping the Soviet project on a relatively small scale until 1947. And it was this date that marked the end of the period during which the Soviets condemned the Western monopoly on atomic secrets. For although the test of their first atomic bomb was still more than two years away, the Soviets now, in 1947, felt that they had, they could proceed toward it with confidence. So, uh, from what I've read, and um, the Soviets were actually at par with the West in terms of fission research until the year 1941. Um, 1941 is an important year because that's the year that this, the, the um, that's the year the United States jumps into World War II. And that's also, the, also same the year, year they, that the yeah the, the invaded, uh, the it's, it's the that the Germans invaded the Soviet Union. It's the year that the Germans invade the Soviet Union, so mm-hmm. they fall behind that research during the war because they're diverting their resources towards the immediate protection of their their territory. And here's a quote from um, historian uh, Paul Josephson, and he's quoted as saying. That by the eve of the Nazi invasion, the Soviets could not only boast of scientists who could who contributed significantly to the worldwide growth of nuclear physics, but had laid the foundation for work on the atomic bomb. And then he cites some, um, you know, the contributions made by Soviet physicists to the study of uh, of nuclei and uh, nucleus or nuclei. Am I reading this right? Nuclei is plural. Nucleus? Right? Mm-hmm. Nuclei. Nuclei. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, And in the 1932 splitting of uh, the lithium atom by proton bombardment Mm -hmm. and um, by World War II Soviet physicists, um, I guess they, they understood that through nuclear fission, they could develop an extremely powerful bomb, but they only had a theoretical understanding. So by the eve of the Nazi invasion, the Soviet Union lacked... Any type of organizational setup for a large-scale project. Therefore, despite their theoretical understanding, they lack the the technical ability to to uh, apply that to an actual bomb or a weapon or a warhead. And you know, there there were nowhere close to being able to build the bomb in 1941. But this bomb becomes an issue again, and this is what I found really interesting. And I think this will kind of um, kind of create a really interesting conversation from here when they got wind that the West was building one and uh, the way that historian uh, Thomas Holloway puts it is that the the bomb became an issue in the Soviet Union when they noticed that the Western physics journals no longer published articles dealing with nuclear fission so they concluded that they must be working on a bomb And uh, after that, Stalin authorized a small scale project at the Academy of Sciences for the investigation into the possibility of an atomic bomb in 1942. And uh, Iger uh, Kurchatov was appointed the director of this project. So, a lot of things to unpack right here. But I think the first thing we should do is we should start off with the basics. What is fission? Because we've talked about this in previous episodes um, you know, with the Iranian nuclear program or lack thereof, a Iranian weapons <laughs> nuclear program. But right. what the hell is fucking fission? We did yeah. an entire so, episode, by the way, on nuclear weapons versus uh, nuclear, nuclear uh, civilian programs. It's like a two-hour mm-hmm. episode. And I'll take the Pepsi challenge on that. Danny breaks it down better than anywhere else you're going to see it. So anywhere else <laughs> you're going to listen to it. So listen to that past episode. Of nuclear weapons programs um, versus uh, nuclear civilian programs at Bro History because it is an awesome episode. Danny breaks it down to a T, but explain what is what is fission, my good right. friend. Explain to me the nuclear fission, Daniel. <laughs> well, you know,
2: I'm, I'm not going to totally rehash that episode, you know, in the hopes that some people who are very interested can go back and actually listen to that one because I did a lot of research there. Um, so if you do have that interest definitely listen to that one but for the purposes of this conversation i think you know to to talk about how the soviets got the bomb we have to talk about nuclear fission and how you know it was developed and nuclear fission in in the the simplest terms is the basis on which the atomic bomb and nuclear reactors are powered right it's a it's a um, process uh, that releases a whole lot of energy and um, this is this is what we're going to talk about so what Not a lot of people, I think, know, uh, especially if you haven't listened to the last episode uh, on this particular topic, is that um, this was actually first discovered in Nazi Germany uh, a year before the start of the uh, Second World War. And in December, like 1938, there was a radio chemist. His name was Otto Hahn and also another one uh, named Fritz Strasman. And they were messing around in the lab. uh, And they, you know, of course, made an unexpected discovery as as is the case with most of the things that we figure out just by accident. So to kind of simplify the science-y stuff, they were basically shooting elements with neutrons. uh, And this is the process that you mentioned earlier called bombardment, just to see what happens, right? Honestly, it sounds kind of fun. It's basically like blowing shit up at a micro scale to see what happens. Um, And normally, when you bombard an element with a neutron, that element changes slightly to something else, right? Uh, The process of shooting it with a neutron changes it. Um, But when they hit uranium with the same process, they found out that it changed a lot. Uh, It actually broke into two roughly equal sized pieces of a lighter element, totally different element, called barium. Uh, Maybe you might remember um, Einstein's famous equation, E equals mc squared. Uh, I I won't fault you if you don't understand the physics behind it, but all you really need to know is that especially as it relates to this experiment, is that um, when Hahn and Strassman broke the uranium into two lighter barium pieces, it lost a lot of mass, right? So it lost a lot of uh, uh, mass there. And the mass just doesn't disappear, right? It's not fucking magic, right? It, it ha- Something has to happen to it. Uh, and according to E equals MC squared, that, that mass doesn't disappear. What happens to it is it turns into energy, a lot of energy, and this part is important for later. Um, they also found out that, in addition to letting off all that energy, um, when they split the uranium into two smaller barium pieces, it also spit out a bunch of neutrons going at super fast rate. So remember, neutrons are the thing that they were using to shoot the uranium in the first place, right? So th- this is what's going on in, in in fission.
0: All right, but I think you're losing because. You gotta remember, I'm not I'm not a smart man. As I like to I like to uh, remind <laughs> people who listen to this podcast, I'm not a smart man, Gen A, I A. I know I'm not smart, Um Gen A. W- you're li- so all right for people who are getting lost with all the science stuff because all right I, when I listen to like high level science stuff, um, I always get left behind. Um, so why is this all important?
2: Well. Henry, the reason why this is important is because spitting out a bunch of energy and neutrons kicks off a chained reaction that is later used to create the atomic bomb and nuclear energy. Think of it this way. Uh, think of like stacking up some dominoes, right? Pretty simple concept. Push over the first one, that one knocks over the next domino, and so on and so on and so on, right? The idea was that if you stuck a bunch of uranium together and you shot it with a neutron, that it would re- release a shit ton of energy and some neutrons. And those neutrons would go on to split more uranium, which makes more energy and more neutrons. You get my, my my drift here? Boom, you, you got yeah. a bomb, right? And also energy, uh, if you wanted to use it for peaceful means. But we're talking about bombs today, so, you know. Basically, they, by accident, by <laughs> blowing shit up at the micro scale, they discovered that if you do this process of bombardment to uranium... You get this chain reaction. It's pretty cool. Anyway, okay. so the Germans, they, they discovered this first, right? And then physicists from all over the world try to replicate it so that they could use it for like weapons and shit. Um, physicists like the Soviet ones, right? And and this is kind of where we turn to, you know, the Soviet atomic program.
0: Well, here's the thing. So sh- something that I'm confused about is that, for, so, um, you know, from what I've read, it, it seems that the Soviet had already had a really a pretty a pretty strong grasp on these theories, um, mm-hmm. on the theory of fission, um, and they had this theoretical understanding. But you know, they get the bomb or they test their first, they have their first nuclear test in 1949. Um, mm-hmm. Like I think they were confident by the that year 1947 that they were going to get the bomb. So, right. um, however i'm curious when did when did they start working on this actual or when did they start working on this atomic project like when did it really start to exist because i've i've read multiple starting points so i'm a bit confused on this one
2: pretty much i mean like scientific communities are kind of cool because they all share information right they'll write um in scientific journals and you know those get picked up all over the world and translated and stuff like that so generally speaking um information travels pretty quickly and at the time when the germans figured it out the soviets tried you know among other physicists all over the world they they pretty much started working on this immediately afterwards um after the germans figured it out but they they had some major challenges and i, I know that you had pointed out a bunch of them a little earlier on in the in the show here uh where you know the the first major challenge that the, the um the soviets faced was in 1941 when the germans invaded right the soviet union and and like you pointed out, like all the attention went to fighting off the Nazis, and nuclear physics got backburned. So those scientists were put to work instead on other things, right? So while they they got a pretty early start, and they had a, like they were making some headway too, uh, as you pointed out earlier, you know the the, the war was much more pressing, uh, and those scientists they they put them to work on things like radar and shit, right? Uh, because that was seen as more important for like immediate right now. Um, but there were still a couple of scientists that were working on fission anyway. One scientist in particular, Peter L. Kapitza, uh, he was actually the one that, that um, came up with the idea that it would be a good idea to use a uranium bomb uh, to fight the Germans. Um, so they let him keep doing his thing, but they didn't really give him a whole lot to work with, right? The, the second challenge here is just manpower and resources. Um, like I said before, the, most of the Soviet Union's top scientists were working on more conventional technologies which produce an immediate impact on the war, right? Like conventional bombs, conventional radar, things like that were useful right now. Um, and, you know, when you got the Nazis on your door, you kind of you have to prioritize that, you know, uh, which I don't totally blame them on that. But uh, what they ended up working with, they had something like only 20 scientists and a small support staff around them that were working on fission at the time. So you can imagine any of the early, like uh, any of the early, Progress that they made researching fission pretty much went out the window, you know, uh, at this point because they, they got reduced a lot.
0: And meanwhile, just to put this in, in proper context, the Manhattan Project that that operation had over 130,000 people, billions of dollars behind right. it. So mm-hmm. this is like a skeleton crew of 20 people versus like right. this top secret multi-billion dot this billion, billion dollar project dollars, it was. with yeah. mm-hmm. huge amount of people. That was yeah. backed by, you know, three different states, um, what, U.S., Britain, and Canada were all funding this um, right. with w- a much larger industrial might than what the Soviet Union had. So right. it is um, just the uh, disparity between the manpower between the two programs the at the time mm-hmm. is time uh, and resources is just huge.
2: Right, Huge. And and honestly that warrants a show all by itself. Um talking about the Manhattan Project. Maybe we maybe we do one, but needless to say, they they beat the Soviets to the bomb by a mile, right? By a lot. So yeah, the the Soviets were pretty good at nuclear like um physics, but you know, just priorities. You know, they they just didn't invest in it. And, you know, uh by nineteen forty five, though, the US conducted the Trinity test when they finally, you know, were able to to successfully blow up in a uranium bomb and you know as we talked about in our last episode the soviet union um uh truman basically told stalin how they got the bomb but stalin was seemed at least outwardly pretty disinterested
0: yeah last episode we spoke about this so um um i said that and this is according to truman that he had mentioned to stalin um during the postum um conferences that he had this new weapon of unusual destructive force. Like that was the exact language he used. Um right. he didn't say the outright bomb, but wink nod, wink, wink, you know this weapon that everyone theoretically knows about? Well our mm-hmm. scientists have figured it out and <laughs> we're gonna use it and you're gonna see this go you're gonna right. see this thing go down. Just and, watch. Mm-hmm. Um Stalin allegedly that the reaction of Stalin and I've heard, and I've read this in multiple uh, sources that Stalin's reaction was like, yeah, whatever. Like he, he was just like, okay, sure. Yeah. Okay. He didn't really cool. show any type of special interest when, when Truman uh, told him that they successively were able to um, test a nuclear bomb uh, or an atomic bomb um, in the Trinity test in 1945 prior to the, or no, during the conference because the test took place during the actual postum conference. Now, Right. Um I guess all he really had said is he hoped he would make good use of it, you know, against the Japanese. Right. Right. And and publicly, you're
2: absolutely right, Stalin did, you know, show disinterest, but privately though, he went back and he told his top advisors to speed shit up on the bomb race. Um but at that point it was already too late, you know. Um around this time, I I think what's important to point out that Uh, I think a bunch of nations could have organically developed the atomic bomb, including the Soviet Union, um, but the conditions weren't right. You had to have the right conditions to get this going in the time frame that they were getting it in. It's kind of like a Goldilocks situation. So the Germans, as we know, discovered uh, fission first. So they had the advantage of time, right? They they figured it out first. They probably could have developed the bomb and they definitely were working on it. But they were too busy invading everyone and they ended up getting wrecked by the allied forces before they can get the bomb thankfully right so conditions weren't right there you know they had hitler doing weird shit opening up too many fronts and killing too many people for them to pay attention to making a bomb um the soviets kind of similarly they started working on fusion a little bit later than the germans but pretty early on right but they they just didn't prioritize this particular uh you know weapon system. They they were prioritizing conventional weapon systems to fight off the Germans who happened to be invading them at the time. Uh so that slowed down their progress considerably, but they were still working on it. And and maybe given enough time they probably could have figured it out. They did, but y- you get what I'm saying. Um in the US, uh well, they were an ocean away. They didn't have Nazi German invaders. Uh, And they had this advantage and also kind of the forward thinking to invest the time, the money, and the resources towards Fission to get that competitive military advantage over their enemies and, frankly, their allies. Um, So the moral of the story here is don't pass up on researching new weapons in favor of conventional ones.
0: This is actually probably a pretty good uh, good segue. Um, (laughs) Yeah. All right. (laughs) Video games. We love them. You probably love them. We want to tell you about a game that we've been playing, Conflict of Nations is a free online PvP strategy game. It's a game where you take a command, you take command of a modern battlefield, and lead a country through war, modern war. Engage in a battle against real players. You can engage in battle with either Danny or myself.
3: even at thirty thousand feet so sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus that's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life
2: no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: hey there i'm dylan lewis one of the hosts of motley full money each weekday on motley full money we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on wall street On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them.
2: Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them.
0: To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Danny, are you taking your your own advice in this game? Have you been researching?
2: It's funny that you point that out. Um, So in the last episode when I was telling you about my uh, experience. I was taken over the Middle East to Syria and then Mongolia came and invaded everything. So I decided to play a new game where I was Mongolia because I was like, I want to be the horde. And I was prioritizing just creating a bunch of troops because there's so much land in Russia and like Kazakhstan and all these other places that are surrounding it that you just need to kind of capture a bunch of, you know, land. But it's not all about capturing the land. I captured so much land mass and then later Myanmar came out of nowhere and he's got rail guns. And all I've got is these rinky dink little soldiers and they absolutely destroyed me. Uh, so I, I gotta I gotta take my own advice on this one. I, <laughs> I need to research better, better technology.
0: Sounds like you overextended yourself. I did. <laughs> you overextended did. yourself. That's the cost of Empire right there, overextension. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. All right, we'll fight up to 128 other players in real time in games that can take weeks to complete. Over 100 beautifully modeled modern weapon systems such as tanks, jets, nuclear submarines, nuclear ballistic submarines, combat helicopters, stealth strike fighters, airborne infantry units, and many more. Terrifying weapons of mass destruction with (laughs) lasting consequences on the population and economy. All that type of stuff that we talk about on the show. Uh, So declare war on your neighbors, virtually not in real life hopefully not don't, right? this is the outlet to declare war on your neighbors in a virtual setting don't declare right. war on your neighbors in uh your in reality in real life. that's not <laughs> we, we don't preach that but simulating war there's nothing wrong with that um mm-hmm. or forge alliances with other players so make that's new friends right. online like mm-hmm. you're doing right now by listening to us we're your friend um, and then you can play with the same account on both pc and mobile uh, where to download this game? Conflict of Nations World War III on the App Store and the Play Store. Again, that is Conflict of Nations World War Three on the App Store or the Play Store. Or you can play the web game at ww 3tv ww3.tv. All right. So uh, you were telling me that the Soviets didn't priorita- uh, prioritize uh, research on Fission early enough to get the bomb, but eventually the Soviets do get the bomb. So I'm interested in, um, figuring out or finding out, you know, when they were able to, um, achieve this, because it just seems like, you know, they had the theoretical, um, you know, uh, they they had the theoretical principles down to create one, but they didn't have the manpower. They didn't have the resources. I don't think they had the uranium either to do the, to create the bomb. But it just seems kind of uh, crazy to me that they were able to catch up with the Allies or with the United States so quickly when they were so behind and, and they were coming off a brutal war that basically right. just completely devastated the entire country. I mean. Just look at the uh, just look at any accounts of of uh, allied marshals like uh, like field Mon- field marshal Montgomery or um, on or or does any journalist of what they saw in Russia after World mm-hmm. War II you know the whole mm-hmm. place was completely devastated like the Nazis the, the just the war itself was a devastating war we're yeah. talking about um, a war of racial uh, murder. Uh, from 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 village to village and uh it's hard to believe that they were able to um you know not only mobilize um and uh and uh you know obviously go on this great offensive where they eventually sack berlin mm-hmm. but create this atomic weapon program in only a couple of years so uh, how do they figure this out like how did this how did this like Jumpstart and how do they catch up with the United States to you know eventually create this nuclear um, um, to cre- to create a world environment where Rand corporations, which we mentioned before, exist. Hmm.
2: Well, um, you know, in, in, in August of forty nine, that the, they the Soviets tested out their first bomb in Semipalatinsk in Kazakhstan, and it's pretty interesting. They they constructed the bomb. Uh, and a bunch of buildings and bridges to blow up uh, to see what would happen. Uh, they also put animals in cages to test out uh, what would happen to them from the radiation. And what was interesting about it was that Hopefully the blast was— dogs. Uh, It might have been dogs, dude. They, they, they tested it out on all kinds of animals, dude. They sent dogs up. to space, so— you Yeah, yeah, they don't care. They really okay. don't care. Uh, anyway, the, what was interesting about this was that the blast was 20 kilotons, which was roughly equal to the Trinity test. Mm-hmm. First little, like, uh, interesting point. But as you pointed out, they they were pretty far behind the U.S. And somehow they managed to pop one off just a couple years after us that happened to be about the same size as ours. I think you're probably catching what I'm Putting down here. The short story of this is that pretty much every nuclear weapons program around the world is that we made it first and someone else stole it, including the Soviets.
0: Okay. So um, this is uh, something that I read and uh, in preparation of this episode. I read in this paper and um, I I had sent it to you. It's by, it was online. It was from um, a Harvard undergrad named uh, Mm -hmm. Michael Schwartz in 1996. And uh, he starts off by saying um, that, um, he quotes um, Nikolai Alexandrov, and he says there was no Russian atomic bomb, there was an American masterfully discovered by Soviet spies. And then, you know, this whole paper goes into just how, um, you know, what the role of espionage was in the Soviet atomic bomb Uh process so i'm curious to hear what you thought of that when i yeah sent it i mean to you. I,
2: it, it was a great find actually I, I have no idea how you find this shit sometimes um but uh the, the premise of that paper as you pointed out talks about this extremely hotly debated subject of how the soviets ended up with a bomb actually found almost an equal number of, of um you know resources that you know, say that they were able to do it on their own and resources that say it was only through espionage that they were able to do it. I think the truth is probably a little bit of both, right? Um, but uh, there there was a lot of competing arguments that historians bring up here on the Soviets uh, against the, the idea that the Soviets stole the bomb, though. So some of them will point out, you know, that the Soviets had some brilliant scientists. They laid out a lot of groundwork for, you know, atomic weapons early on in the discovery of fission. Um, so a couple of noteworthy things in 32, they split the lithium, uh, atom by proton bombardment guy, uh, Igor Kurt, uh, Kurtotov in 35 discovered something called the isomerism of artificially radioactive atoms. I don't know what that is, but sounds important. Um, you know, the Soviets were the first, uh, scientists in the world to repeat the experiments of splitting the atom by artificial means. That's in- incredibly important. Um, this guy named Semenov uh, established the conditions that were necessary for f- uh, f- uh, fission chain reactions. And that was uh, for his work between 39 and 41. So this is well before um, you know the, the war had kicked off there, or at least uh, before uh, the invasion at least. Uh, and he got the Nobel Prize for physics among many other uh, Soviet physicists who also got nuclear, uh, excuse me, Nobel Prizes for nuclear physics in the 30s. Um, But I tend to agree with, you know, with this guy Schwartz uh, um, from the the paper that he wrote that you sent me. So one one thing, a quote that he has here, uh, he wrote, still a war-torn nation was able to develop an atomic bomb in only four years, the same amount of time it took the United States, Canada, Great Britain, with the massive industrial might and accumulated efficiency of DuPont, General Electric, Tennessee Eastman, and Bell Systems, uh, researched and developed expenditures totaling $2 billion, and nearly the entire scientific community mobilized in the Manhattan Project to develop their bomb. So basically what he's pointing out here is that despite all of the advancements that the Soviet scientists made in nuclear physics, they couldn't have been able to make any practical application of the science until, of course, 1949 when they suddenly had one, and the timeline just doesn't match, right? We were talking about how they had this little skeleton crew of 20 people, right? And the Manhattan Project was 130,000 people. There's no way that they had the incredible efficiency <laughs> to, to get that done. You know, it's just unbelievable, totally unbelievable. Um, but, you know, the the scientific um, community in the U.S., they actually stopped publishing articles on, on nuclear uh, physics, you know, in the early 40s. Uh, to keep those secrets locked up, because remember, I told you before, early on, you know, the, the scientists will put out a paper and they like show off. Hey, look what I found out! Right? They're like, all yeah, that's
0: what it. I I had mentioned that. So I I had quoted that earlier. That mm-hmm. um that was like one of the uh tips that um that that we were working the, on the stuff. scientific community had um in the Soviet Union, and that's what you know made Stalin very nervous that right. they stop seeing these and they stop seeing responses that, because I guess when you publish a paper in the international scientific community then I guess the way it works is that there's like a response or a rebuttal or whatever, there's, right. you know, there's some process, type of reaction right. to it and mm-hmm. there was radio silence in that end so yep. they figured that hey listen, like, shut up. this has been something mm-hmm. that we've been talking about We've been the, the world has known this, um, at least the scientific world has known that you know about this fission process and the splitting of atoms and how it can create these potentially theoretically create these weapons and uh, they, the fact that there's that there's no word back um, kind of uh, tells that they they are they either have it or they're really really developing it right now and why wouldn't yeah. they you know mm-hmm. like why why wouldn't they be developing it right now you know you right. have this theory and the united states is uh, in a position to create this bomb um they have the resources to create this project you know they're not what you like you had mentioned earlier there's not in, there's not a land invasion um from the east or west coast either from japan or germany um they're free to concentrate on this science and and this on this project and uh and and create that and you know, with the creation of that bomb, you're creating, you're making yourself masters of the world. Like there's no, right, there's no uh, competition with you, especially if you're able to successfully detonate it and show mm-hmm. that you're willing to use it, which but the United the- States does twice. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. And but the unfortunate part for the Soviets here is that you know, although they they got all of these signs that we were probably working on or at least pretty far along in the process because we stopped talking about it, um they basically wrote us off they were like a lot of the older scientists in the soviet union didn't think that we could pull it off in you know even 10 years in any reasonable amount of time for it to make a difference in the war so they they thought it was just not important right now um and you know it wasn't until after the potsdam conference you know that we talked about that that the soviet union started picking up the pace i mean schwartz in that in that um paper he wrote talked about the inhumane conditions uh, that the Soviet scientists were subjected to to accelerate the nuclear program. Things like they were working ex- incredibly long hours. Nobody took any holidays. Like they were forced you know to stay in these like? Like places. Yeah.
0: You ever hear about like a um, th- uh, video game creating designing culture it's it's exactly uh, like that it's called the crunch so naughty naughty dog was like and there's a lot of examples of this i think naughty places like that yeah blizzard and um what's the company that makes um bioware bethesda all those big gaming companies something called mm -hmm. crunch 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 Crunch. culture Mm -hmm. and when it comes down to um i guess when they're about to release a game or the they're going through all the bugs and they're about to finish it, they um, basically are working like 90 plus hour days and they're treated treated and humiliated. (laughs) 90 plus hour days. They leave the office. (laughs) And like they're not paid and stuff. And like they're paid. Yeah, they're not paid for their time is not given to them until after the game is released. Like all these things. Mm -hmm. I read a bunch about it. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah, it
2: was was exactly like that after the Potsdam Conference in the Soviet Union. They basically force them to to keep working but like no amount like honestly again no amount of like 90 hour work weeks is gonna you know make you do this in the four years that it took them to do that it's just it doesn't make any sense and and they had all these technical barriers too right that that part didn't make any sense either um so so like us they started recruiting german refugee scientists to help them out but even that wasn't enough So I have some quotes here uh, that I'd love to read. So despite such rapid uh, success in their development of a chain reaction and subsequently of an atomic bomb, the Soviet program was plagued by an array of problems. The Soviet scientists were not as technologically advanced as their success might have indicated. And they never had uh, as they had never before obtained uranium and needed the aid of German scientist Nikolaus Riel uh, to develop Uh, ...uranium suitable for a reactor. They also had limited resources of uranium and graphite. They lacked Geiger counters, a tool necessary for finding such deposits... ...used impure uranium that lacked the proper number of neutrons for a chain reaction... ...and employed a very poor diffusion technique. German refugee scientists were needed to develop nickel pipes... gauged to the proper porosity for diffusion... However, even though many scientific achievements of the Soviet project have been chronicled, and even though the German refugee scientists were able to fill in the pieces where the project went awry, the speed with which the Soviets attained the bomb and numerous problems organizationally and scientifically that the Soviets encountered suggest that other factors outside of the scientific realm of the project contributed to the development of the bomb. The fact that the Soviets could not develop reactor grade uranium or plutonium attacked the problem with simplistic engineering procedures and inadequate mathematics team. Damn, they're bad at math (laughs) and historically had problems with the practical application of physics demands a closer look at the role of espionage played in their bomb development. So I think this is a good time to talk about something else.
0: So, so I guess what they're saying is the Soviets just outright they stole uh, the bomb, right? Like yeah, it doesn't it. seem like they <laughs> had the actual capability to uh, do it themselves. So, um, there's like a lot of stories about espionage that the the espionage that was involved, and um, mm-hmm. there was people who were arrested, right? In it, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. for for espionage for the bomb, and I don't oh, I yeah. know some of those were kind of like gray areas where I don't know if they are guilty or not, but right. I don't know. Um tell me tell um us the people listening um what was the role that of espionage in their in the nuclear pro- in the Soviet atomic project sure and uh okay. yeah
2: yeah yeah stuff. of course
0: so between 42 and
2: 54 uh the KGB they got thousands of pages of technical information about the Manhattan project so some things they got were like calculations for you know, uh, the construction of a plutonium charge, calculations for critical mass of fissile material, like how much material you need for it to, you know, uh, make a chain reaction. Uh, information about the detonation devices, so like the starters. Information about uh, diffusion, which I don't really understand very much. Uh, information about plutonium production. Uh, they got a report um, for the study of secondary neutrons, which are important. Uh, that's the chain reaction bits. Um, a report on metallurgy of uranium and plutonium so just helping them understand the material a bit better and also information about kinetics of atomic reactions so like how does the how do the chain reactions work and interact with itself so basically in layman's terms they got all the important shit you need to know about how to build a bomb so how do they get the information i mean spies Uh, there's Or a lot of them, but the main ones uh, I want to focus on uh, are Klaus Fuchs. Fuchs? I'm gonna call him Fuchs. Klaus Fuchs.
0: Uh, uh, Julian and Fuchs. (laughs) Want to hear a a funny story? Want to hear a funny story? All right. So I was I was uh, in uh, Belgium, Uh and uh, I was like I had to go to uh, I was I was visiting my friend there. Who, who lived in Brussels and he, mm. i was um he gave me his address and it was spelled like d e f u q <laughs> de <fuck>? and <laughs> i um i was like it can't be called the de, uh defux so i was to the cab driver i was like hey can you take me to uh defux 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 de and he's like what he's like defux defux de and he's like I'm like reading it. He's like, the, the Fuchs. And he's like, I don't know where what, what you're talking about. And then I handed him a paper. And then with the address, And he's like, the fucks. <laughs> what the fucks? The fucks.
2: <laughs> yeah. All right. We're going to call him Klaus Fuchs for fun. Um, so I want to talk about Klaus Fuchs. I also want to talk about Julian and Ethel Rosenberg. Those, those are the juicy stories out of this. Um, don't really have time to go through all of this. But there are lots of them. Um, Lots and lots. But these are the, the famous ones, the, the important ones. So I'll talk about Klaus first. So our, our boy fux here, he was a German scientist and refugee in the UK. Uh, he worked on the Manhattan Project and also on the Tube Alloy, Tube Alloy Project, which was involved there. Um, and he was probably the primary Soviet um, atomic bomb spy. Uh, so he ended up confessing uh, to the U.S. War Department uh, and the FBI Uh, in January of 1950 that he had given the Soviet Union the principal designs uh, to create a plutonium bomb, the ones that he was working on in the Manhattan Project. And he had access to all of the relevant files. He had access to key sites like Los Alamos, where they were working on the bomb. And he provided incredibly technical details about the bomb, like the size of it, what it contained, how it was constructed, how it was detonated, all kinds of shit. And, you know, the info that he provided was so accurate that when the Soviets started building their own facilities, they're basically exact copies. Here's, um, this was an interesting one that I got from that art, uh, that paper, um, a breakdown of, of one of the facilities that they were building. Um, so I'm just going to do, uh, first I'll say the, uh, what technical specification, the American one, and then the Russian one. So, the power of this facility, uh, the American one was 10 watts, the Russian one was 10 watts. Okay, no big deal. The diameter, it was 19 feet for the U.S., and it was also 19 feet for the Russian one. Here's where it gets crazy. The lattice spacing, I don't know what this is, but just follow me on this one, is eight and a half inches, on the Russian one is eight inches, so like half an inch off. Loading was 27 tons and 25 tons, so very close. The rod diameter was 1.4 inches and the Russian one was 1.6 inches. So it was basically the same shit, right? Like they built it almost exactly to the same specifications, which was nuts. They even used uh similar terms, uh, to describe these measurements. So the U S used a term called barns, uh, which was a unit of measurement referring to like, this is the broad side of a barn and how big that was, uh, fucking Imperial measurement systems. It's like feet, inches, barns. Um, the, the Russians ended up using a similar word called barnus which means sheep or ram. And the size was the, exactly the same. So get it? Sheep, barn, you know, very unoriginal. Um, so Fox's uh, espionage ended up leading to the U.S. to cancel uh, a 1950 plan to give Britain uh, American-made bombs because he was in the U.K. at the time. So they were worried that, I guess, the Russians would get a bomb or something. I don't know. But um, he he ended up getting prosecuted uh, in 1950 on four counts of breaking the Official Secrets Act uh, by communicating uh, information to a potential enemy. His trial was fast. It was like less than 90 minutes long, and he got sentenced to 14 years in jail, and that was the maximum uh, in the UK for espionage uh, because the Soviet Union was classified at the time as an ally before the Cold War here. And in December 1950, he was stripped of his British citizenship. And while he was serving his time, this is an interesting story. He actually got like chummy with uh, the IRA um, prisoner, the Irish Republican Army, uh, Seamus Murphy. Uh, and he played chess with them, and they got buddy-buddy. And allegedly, he helped him to escape, which is an, uh, another interesting story. We'll have to ask Danny Sherson about that to see if he, if he knows all about that. Um, anyway... Fuchs was uh, released on the 23rd of June in 59, and he only served nine years and four months of his sentence and got let go for good behavior in prison. What's wild about all this is that Fuchs was definitely instrumental in helping the Soviets get the bomb, and his punishment was pretty lax, if you, if you ask me, especially as compared to like some of the next spies I want to talk about. So that's
1: Klaus, Klaus Fuchs. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief
3: for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th.
0: All right. Oh, Klaus Fox. Oh, Fox. Klaus Fox. <laughs> my name's <laughs> Klaus. My name's Klaus oh.
2: and i fucks. Fox. Uh, okay, like so I want to name. talk about... Uh, another one. So, this is these are Americans, right? Ju- Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Uh, so, th- they're both American-born citizens. Uh, they were of Russian descent, and uh, they were born in New York City in nineteen fifteen and nineteen eighteen, respectively. Uh, so, Julius and Ethel they lived in the Lower East Side of Manhattan for most of their lives, and they actually ended up going to the same high school, but they were three years apart. Um, so, Julius attended uh, a school of engineering at New York college um and he graduated with a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering and uh, their love story is pretty interesting they both uh attended a communist group called uh the young communist league (laughs) and uh you know they hit it off dreaming about like i don't know a workers revolution seizing the product the means of production or something like that i don't know it's each their own man i'm not going to judge but that's what they were into so they were commies right uh, but that wasn't particularly uncommon at the time. Remember, this is before Cold War and, like, McCarthyism and shit. So, you know,
0: it, it was,
2: you know, it was around. It was a thing. It was more like counterculture.
0: No, the Young Communists. So, all right, this this is, I don't want to divide, diverge too far into a different topic, but the Young Communists League was pretty prevalent, especially yeah. um in in the country, especially in, like, the 1930s, um, mm-hmm. with a lot of it. It it if there was less of a stigma um, prior to the Cold War, and um, you get some real interesting splits there because that's kind of where uh, um, a lot of the Trotsky kind of emerge uh, mm-hmm. because they were anti-Stalin but they were still communist. And I don't right. know, I don't want to diverge too far off the off topic, but um, the point is that enough, it was around, think, right? It w- it wasn't it, like it this was, underground, it was, thing. yeah. Right. But yeah, it was in, so, it was in New York. Um, right. Of course, it's in New York, but um, all right. Sorry to no, no, to interject with that. Anyway, to, to continue
2: on this story. So Julius ends up joining the Army Signal Corps Engineering Laboratories at Fort Monmouth in New Jersey uh, in 1940. Uh, and he worked as an engineer inspector, uh, and he did that for about five years. He ended up getting fired later uh, by the U.S. Army. Uh, because they discovered that he was a member of the Communist Party. So even though it was somewhat rel- like prevalent, like communist clubs and things like that here in the United States, the U.S. military really didn't like it very much. So that's why he got let go from his position there. Um, and also because he's working at a top secret, you know, fucking lab uh, and he was a communist. So, you know, I guess it kind of made sense, even if it was a little weird. But at that facility, he, he, uh, they were doing research on electronics, communications, radar, and guided missile controls. Uh, so he had a lot of access to important shit while he was there. Um, but it, it started getting crazier when, um, you know, Julius ended up getting recruited to be a spy for the Interior Ministry of the Soviet Union. And he ended up providing them with thousands of classified reports from Emerson Radio Uh, including uh, a complete proximity fuse for the bomb, so, like, uh, how it detonates. And um, the spying got really intense after a while uh, when uh, Julius was uh, instructed by his handlers to start recruiting more spies, Uh, and one in particular that he brought on was Ethel's brother, uh, David Greenglass, so his brother-in-law. And he brought him on because he was working on the top-secret Manhattan Project, at the Los Alamos National Laboratory with Klaus Fuchs. He ended up getting a $100 bonus for this, for the recruitment bonus. So that's what they paid him for it, which is interesting. Um, eventually, when our when our guy, uh, Klaus Fuchs, gets caught uh, and he confesses, he ends up snitching that he was working with an American guy, different guy, named Harry Gold. And Gold was like the go between, he was the courier for the leaked information. So Harry Gold gets arrested in 1950 and he snitches on David Greenglass, who is also passing him information to give to the Soviets. You can see where this, you know, is going, right? So the snitching keeps going and it gets way juicier. The short version of this story is that David snitches on both Julius and his sister, Ethel. And he claims that Ethel was typing up the handwritten leaked documents for Julius to pass along to Harry Gold, right? Now, Julius was definitely a spy. Like, he, like the, the case that the FBI makes against him is pretty solid. And, you know, they connect him with his handler, Anatoly Yakolov, uh, through Harry Gold and Klaus Fuchs, you know, through both of their confessions. Like, that part lines up. Julius is probably definitely a spy, right? Uh, but the claims against Ethel, his wife, and the sister of David was kind of dubious. Was she a commie? Yes. Was she married to a spy? Yes. Was she instrumental in passing along state secrets? That part is, like, not clear. You know, there's a lot of people who debate this topic. It's pretty hot. Actually, uh, their kids um, are, you know, have made a, a big plea to try and get them posthumously, or at least get the mother, Ethel, posthumously um, pardoned for, uh, for her role in this mess uh, and I think I think they asked Obama to do it and he said no or something like that I forgot about that part hey Sirhan um,
0: Sirhan was just released from prison yeah right so and and um, and, and uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. was supportive of it that's right that's right you know yeah, we talked Robert, about that, didn't we? I you know uh, RFK Jr. definitely is like yeah I kind of believe that he was probably hypnotized or something and he was a <laughs> yeah. passy I think he, yeah yeah um, totally, but I mean, w- what's interesting story. about the story is that da- David Greenglass,
2: so the brother of Ethel, you know, he ends up snitching on his sister, and and some people are pointing out that he tr- he actually did this to save his wife, who may have been the actual person that was typing up the notes. So like he passed off the blame onto his sister, which is kind of fucked up, right? Um, but the biggest story about how this uh, about this the biggest part about this story, I should say, is how it ends. So remember Klaus he leaked all that technical information through Harry Gold to the Soviets. And for doing this, remember he was in the UK at the time, he was a, uh, um, a refugee, but so they have different rules there. But for his crime, he got 14 years and served nine and change. And he got off with good behavior. But he gave them like technical shit, like really important stuff. Harry Gold, who is an American who was passing the information between the two places, he got convicted and was sentenced to 30 years. And in 65, one of his appeals uh, went through and he got paroled for good behavior too when he served less than half that time, the 30 years here in the States. He was also credited for some time that he spent in jail before his trial when they were trying to figure out what, what his role was here. But you know, he he sang like a canary, so he got off, I guess, kind of easy. But Julius and Ethel, specifically Ethel, they were both sentenced to death. They were so killed.
0: Interesting. So, now, why do you think that was?
2: So, I don't know, man. I this this part really fucks me up. So Julius definitely was a spy, like I said before, and he did leak information that resulted in, you know, or, or, you know, played a part in how the Soviet Union got the atomic bomb and thus, you know, creating a, a world where, you know, we don't have a nuclear monopoly and therefore, you know, we have this mutually assured destruction and the threat of like, you know, fucking... Uh, the world's going to blow up or something like that. But as I pointed out before, it, it's totally entirely possible that any of these other countries could have organically created the bomb. So they would have gotten it eventually, I think. That's that's my opinion, right? Um, the thing that really messes me up with this is that I feel like they, you know, they just got the shit end of the stick on the judicial area. And, you know, I'm all for them serving time, but like, for them to be sentenced to death is kind of extreme and i think that they were just doing this in the shadow of you know kind of m- making an example of them and saying like if you spy on the us you're going to die you know like we're going to kill you and you know i'm i'm i don't know maybe maybe my political leanings here are showing a bit but like i'm not i'm not in favor of the death penalty um for for almost any crime uh but they didn't like Kill people like they weren't like murderers, you know. They weren't. It, it was just like uh, they were spies. They leaked information. So we're talking. We talked about like, you know, does that mean that uh, fucking
0: Assange could get murdered for that? Does that mean that um, you know, well, speaking Kelsey of Manning, Assange, should get
2: murdered? You know,
0: like that can. I don't. That can open up a can of worms on another topic right now because you do know that you read the story about how there was a plot to assassinate Julian Assange. Right, right. Out of the White House, it was Mike Pompeo. They wanted to assassinate mm-hmm. him, but it was actually White House lawyers that stopped stopped them. Right. Um so there was actually a plot to assassinate him, but I mean that's not tr- Assange is not an American citizen first of all and Right. So that's of all, that's he's a journalist. Yeah. You know, and he's not conspiring against the interest of the people of the country or the nation. He's just revealing government crimes. hmm So he's not giving access to, you know, he's not selling China information. Uh, yeah, no, no.
2: And, and for that reason, like... Yeah, for that reason, I still think, like, Julius definitely deserved to go to jail for sure, right? But it was like this other American, you know... Uh, gold Harry gold he I mean he was the one passing the information back and forth right he didn't have the access that the other people had but like at a minimum you know like he did something wrong too but all he got was jail and because he snitched he got off easy right and I just don't you know like if they were gonna kill uh uh Julius that'd be one thing but the fact that 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 the claims against Ethel are not rock solid like the claims against julius and they just basically murder her and by the way her her she was they were both sentenced to death for the elect with the electric chair and the electric chair kind of sucked for Ethel they had to shock her five times before she died like she was basically tortured in her last moments of life like that was not a it was not a quick and you know painless death she got electrocuted Five times before she died. So pretty brutal, kind of fucked up. She might not have even done anything wrong, you know, like maybe she was, you know, protecting her husband or maybe she was like, you know, involved in a passive way. But like, did she deserve to die?
0: I don't know, man. I don't think so. What do you think? Uh no I don't think I I don't well I'm I'm against the call me my call me a libertarian but I actually am against uh capital punishment yeah. um, so no and um, but can you imagine today that someone being uh, executed or uh, or put to death for uh, for espionage in the United States that would never ever happen or or be reported on or even right. be prosecuted ever you there'd be phony ones like mm-hmm. that are just used to like put people in jail or or they're politically driven like you know right like the trump stuff with russian collusion and stuff like that but mm-hmm. i could never you would never see like um you know like trump was being spied on by the israelis in his white house and there was this political article and they were right. tracking his phone system his uh they were tracking his phone movements and like that is just crazy espionage but, like, that right. would never, ever— But nobody but nobody
2: died because of it, though.
0: Yeah. Well, because that would condemn the actions of, like, an entire intelligence apparatus from a foreign right. state that's technically that's an friendly ally, quote-unquote. Right. But here's the thing. I guess this segues into um, now—I guess uh, we're planning on doing a series—so we we have a lot of episodes mm-hmm. lined up, um, ideas for episodes lined up. Um One of the series that we're going to be working on is called... And it's not going to be like one after another. Like we're not going to do like um, nuclear programs. But we're going to continue doing like how every country got its nuclear program or atomic weapons program. So uh, I guess we'll do one on India's nuclear program, um, Pakistan's nuclear program, Mm -hmm. uh, North Korea's nuclear program. Um, Israel's nuclear program that alleged they neither confirm or program. deny. <laughs> they, that they <laughs> neither their alleged nuclear program. So we're gonna do episodes like that, um, and I guess we'll we'll kind of sprinkle them in every once in a while. I don't know if we'll do one every month or so or every two months. So I I don't know, but we're gonna. It's an interesting topic to explore how every single nation got the bomb or got access to the bomb, and um, we have some other really interesting things uh, planned, um, such as, uh, CIA history, um, cold, more cold war history, uh, like the origins of Vietnam origins of Korean war, man, we got a bunch of ideas. Um, and it's just the, the hardest thing is deciding what we want to do. Um, like what we want to do next, because there's just so many interesting things to talk about, but, um, I don't know, let us know what we should, uh, what you guys are interested in. Best way to do
2: that is to rate and review the podcast and tell us in the comments that you leave us what you want us to talk about because we'd love to hear it from yeah. you.
0: Yeah, I'm looking at my spreadsheet of episode ideas, of uh, topics, and I have, there's 50 episode topics right there. So we have a lot on our plate and our, or a lot on our uh, of ideas. And then we're also um, planning on having more guests um, this year we just started getting guests on again, such as, uh, uh, Scott Horton was on our last show, uh, or two shows ago. And I think was it last show or two shows ago, two shows, two shows ago. ago yeah. Um, and then, uh, um, Joseph Solis Mullen, um, who we hope to have back soon. And then, um, Matt Ho, all, all people we want on the show more and we'll ha- be having more guests. Um, so that's just a quick update on what we're doing and, uh, I guess, I mean, do we want to just about an hour episode? Do you want to wrap this one up right now? The only other thing I can think of talking about is this Yahoo story with, with, uh, there's some stuff with ISIS K that we could always talk about. I don't, but I don't really feel like talking about them right now or giving them the time. The Taliban just did a huge raid on them. (laughs) Yeah. Let's, let's just keep it a short and sweet one this time around. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, all right. So thanks, guys, for listening to another episode of Bro History um the number one way to support our show is to rate and review it and then you can join us on our our patreon patreon um is another great way to support us Uh, you'll get access to our slack community where we uh where we uh communicate with each other and um yeah, we'll be at the Scott Horton debate on Monday. If you are and if you are located in New York, or if you guys are going to the Scott Horton debate on Monday at the So uh, at the Soho Forum. So um, yeah, uh, if you see a big a big tall person, um, and uh, a guy wh- whose hair looks like uh, I don't even know broccoli. how to describe your hair right now, broccoli, <laughs> broccoli, <laughs> a guy who looks like uh, broccoli. <laughs> um and a big tall person and i think uh owen's gonna come with us too right he's yeah hair. he's got he's got red hair yeah a, a flame <laughs> f- he guy hair. who's uh flaming red hair then that's um that will be us so hot hi- say hi or you got the guys from bro history um all right um let's wrap this up all right peace peace